Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Traditionally, the church has called this Good Friday. When I was a kid, I didn't really know why. The reason it was good to me is that the days were getting longer and there was more time for me to play. That's why it was good. I remember Friday we would go to church and I would look through the stained glass windows and see the sun high in the sky thinking, great, summer's coming. This is a good day. But this is Good Friday for an entirely different reason. It's because of the death of Jesus Christ. Which is an odd name to give this day. Because death is a tragedy. What could be good about dying, suffering, death? Why would the church choose to call this day Good Friday? The answer is, of course, because of the results that that day brought. That's why it's so good. Because by the act of one man, one man's obedience, Paul tells us in Romans 5, righteousness, life can be given to so many. It's sort of like surgery. Surgery is painful. It is dangerous in many cases. You take a risk going through with an operation. But surgery can also save a life. And if you go through an operation as painful and dangerous as it is, you may well look back on the day that you had your operation as a very good day. It was good that you went through it. It was good because of the results of that operation. And so this is called Good Friday. I have read in John's Gospel, chapter 19, the word that Jesus shared from the cross when he received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You might say that that is the battle cry of Jesus Christ from the cross. It is finished. There have been many famous battle cries through history. The battle cry of the Japanese in Pearl Harbor was Torah, Torah, Torah. The battle cry of the Texans as they defended their fortress was remember the Alamo. The battle cry of the Revolutionary War Don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes. But by far the greatest and most far-reaching battle cry ever uttered was the one uttered 2,000 years ago from a Roman cross as Jesus, the Son of God, hung there for the sin of all of mankind and said, It is finished. These words were not only heard by those who stood around the cross, the mother of Jesus, the friends of Jesus, an apostle named John, the Roman soldiers, 
onlookers and religious leaders. But these words reverberated through the dark hallways of hell itself and through the courtyards of heaven. It was all part of God's plan before there was ever a creation, before God spoke the world into existence, that God, for the provision of sin caused by Adam and the death spiritually that followed to all men would be taken care of by this work. It says in the last book of the Bible that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was all part of God's plan. We are told that Pilate gave the order for Jesus to be crucified. And it would seem on the surface that the Roman government is well in control of this execution, but they are not. Remember, Jesus often spoke throughout his lifetime of his hour. He used that phrase so often, didn't he? Even at the marriage supper at Cana, he told his mother, my hour has not yet come. And closer and closer to the cross, looking toward Jerusalem, he spoke about his hour. And finally, he said, the hour has come, John 17. Father, glorify your son as your son would glorify you. This is the hour. And in that hour, in that period of time, at that key moment of history, Jesus went from the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested to Pilate's Praetorium, to the house of Caiaphas, to Herod, back to Pilate. And finally, the sentence was given for the crucifixion. Before the crucifixion, as you remember, Jesus had other things happen to him. He was beaten with a flagellum, a cat of nine tails. His back was literally shredded open by the whip with bits of lead, glass, bone that would tear at the skin. And then he was forced to carry the upper part of the cross, the patibulum, all the way to Calvary, Golgotha, the place of public execution. Spikes from about five to seven inches long were placed in Jesus' wrists and in his feet. And he was placed upon a cross, and crucifixion was called the cruelest of all of the forms of execution in the ancient world. Usually, it was a slow, excruciating death. It lasted usually 12 hours. Sometimes the prisoner would be on the cross for two to three days, just dying a slow, agonizing, torturous death. A high fever created a thirst in the body. Physicians that have studied it tell us that the head, the brain, the heart, the lungs are congested with blood. The wounds are inflamed, and so the wounds in Jesus' wrists and in his feet and shredded back were inflamed. And then there would be spasms where And actually, a suffocation would take place. The muscles between the ribs, the intercostal muscles would give out. And with the weight hung from the wrists, those lungs would collapse. You couldn't get any air. And so a a small footrest was placed below the feet. So though you were hanging from your wrist, you would press up on your feet and against the spike in the bones of the feet, and you would take in a breath and exhale. There Jesus, hanging on the cross in that kind of pain, was it was his hour. And he uttered, the scripture tells us, seven sayings from the cross. 
The first one is the one that was the most important because it was man's greatest need. He said, Father, forgive them. Not Father, get them. Father, avenge them. Father, give me five minutes. Just let me get them back. But Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He uttered his sayings, and one of the last sayings is this battle cry, It is finished. It's only one word in the Greek language, and I've always been amazed at how the Greeks with such an ancient language could pack so much meaning in, in such a small word. Tetelestai, he said. One word. Tetelestai, it is finished. It was a word that the Greeks used for a variety of occasions. Not only did Jesus share it from the cross, but this very word was used many times by servants when they would perform the will of their master. If the master said, Servant, it is my will that you go and do this or that. Once the servant would perform the duties, he would come back to the owner and say, To Telestai, the servant would say, it is finished. I have done what you've called me to do. I have followed the agenda. I have obeyed. It's a perfect word then ascribed for Jesus Christ to say in this hour because he was God's servant. Isaiah 53, he's called the servant of God. And he said, I have come to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Ever since he was a little boy, he knew that. When he was 12 years old, he stood in the temple and he spoke to the rabbis and the teachers. And his parents, who had lost him for a day or so, came back to Jerusalem and said, We've been looking all over for you. Jesus said, Why have you been searching? You should know that I would be about my father's business. And he always spoke about doing the work of God and finishing the will of God. And here on the cross, the servant is saying in effect to the master, his father, it's finished. It was also a word that not only servants used, but priests would use in the temple. If you wanted to get your sins cleansed, you would bring an animal to the priest And it couldn't be any animal. It had to be a certain kind of animal without blemish, without spot. And so the priest would examine and inspect your animal. And if it was what the law considered perfect, the priest would say, Tetelestai, or it's teleos, it is complete, it's it's without blemish, it's without spot. And then you would offer it. And here is Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, John the Baptist said that about Jesus when he saw him at the Jordan River, you remember. Look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Peter remarked of this Lamb. He said, you are not redeemed by corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a Lamb without blemish and without spot. Here was the perfect Lamb without spot, without blemish, without sin, being offered for the sins of the world. It was also a word that artists would use when they would complete their work, when they would finish a masterpiece, they would step back from the painting or the sculptor and they would say, tetelestai, or the picture is completed. This is what I had in my mind, this masterpiece, this expression, 
is what I wanted all along. And now the picture is completed. It's finished. It's an appropriate word in that sense because in the Old Testament, God painted different pictures of salvation, of redemption, of His Son. There's types, there's prophecies, there's shadows. But they always formed an incomplete picture. It wasn't until Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and performed the will of His Father that it's as if He stepped back and said, the picture is now completed. This is the one that all the prophets, that all the patriarchs looked forward to. Remember when Jesus walked with two of his disciples after the resurrection, but they didn't know it was Jesus? From Jerusalem to Emmaus. And it says that Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written, Ought not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded unto them all of the things concerning himself. He took and showed them. Look, guys, this is what the Old Testament said. This is what Moses said, Isaiah said, the Psalm said. Now the picture is completed. Christ has come, suffered, and will enter into his glory. To Telestai, the picture is completed. It was also a word that merchants would use whenever somebody owed them some money and they hadn't paid their debts, once the debt was completely paid off, a certificate was written that said, to Telestai, we give the same thing today, it just says paid. And that's what to Telestai meant, paid in full. So there on the cross, Jesus Christ, with one word, to Telestai, it's paid in full. What did he mean? Simply this, we owe a debt we cannot pay on our own. All have sinned, Romans 3, and fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot pay off that debt. You can't say, God, I promise I'll be very, very good for you. Will that help? No. It won't help wash away your sin. And that's why God required a perfect lamb to be shed in our place for the sin of the world. And so Jesus shared, it is finished. What exactly is finished? When he said it is finished, what did he mean? What is finished? Well, a number of things come to mind. Number one, the sufferings of Jesus Christ are finished. Wicked hands had him. Mankind did his worst. Satan tried to push everything he could upon Jesus Christ in terms of suffering. It's over now. He'll never have to go through that again. It's finished. Finished are the sufferings of Jesus Christ upon this earth. Secondly, and more importantly, all of the requirements of the law are finished. That is some good news. Because you and I, for that matter, anyone who has ever lived has never been able to keep all of the laws of God. It is folly whenever I meet somebody and they'll say something like this. I live by the Ten Commandments. That's all the religion I need. Oh, really? You live by the Ten Commandments. Be honest. You've broken some, if not all, of the Ten Commandments. Somebody might say, well, okay, I admit it. I've lied. I've stolen. I've coveted. I've even 
taken God's name in vain, but I've never murdered, I've never committed adultery. But the Bible says if you have broken one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And for that matter, the law was never given, it was never designed by God to make a person righteous. It was designed to show to mankind his failure to be righteous. And to show that there was a solution for the broken law. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice in our place. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3 that God took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and he wiped it away, nailing it to the cross. All of the ordinances that says do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, were taken out of the way. Finished are the righteous requirements of the law in one man's obedience. Finished also is Satan's power to hold a person's life, to grip a person's life, to have the control of where that person goes. Remember, the Bible predicted for a long time that the seed of the woman will come and bruise the head of the serpent, Satan. Ever since that promise was given, prophets, holy men, holy women looked throughout history to find the promised Messiah, the person who would come and crush Satan's power. This is the one. It's finished. You say, well, excuse me, but I think Satan is still very much alive and active. You're right. He's loose and he is active and he's powerful. But he doesn't have to control your life. He doesn't have to have the same grip over your life that he had before you come to Christ. And when you give yourself to Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ comes with that to defeat the enemy. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that through death, through the death of Jesus Christ, the one who had the power of death would be destroyed, that is the devil. Finally, our redemption is finished. Our salvation is finished. It never has to be done again. You don't have to have somebody else come and then somebody else come and have a a continual sacrifice going on. One act is enough to pay for redemption, to pay for salvation. The Bible says that very, very clearly. Never has to be repeated. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Good Friday. Because the word of the gospel, the great word for us is not do, but done. It's not do this, do that, but it's been done. I love that little poem that says, do this and live, the law commands. But it gives us neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids us fly and then it gives us wings. And so the law says, do, do, do. And we go, I haven't done it. And the law says, don't, don't, don't. And go, I did that. And then Jesus Christ comes and says, done. All of the work necessary to complete your salvation is finished. It's done. Never has to be repeated. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You say, well, I've got to do something. 
People came to Jesus one day when he was teaching in Galilee and said the same thing. They said, teacher, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus' answer was this. This is the work of God. Believe on him whom he has sent. What do we got to do? Believe. Now some of you today might say, well, I, I believe, I acknowledge I know a God exists. There is some higher force, some higher power. The word believe doesn't mean acknowledge. It means to commit. It means to do something about it. It doesn't mean that you earn your salvation. It means that you rely on completely. It's an act of lifestyle, not just an acknowledgement of the head. Jesus often used the word repent, change, turn. You're going one direction, turn around and go his direction. And believe in Him. Cast yourself upon Him. Now why would God go through all of this trouble to secure salvation? You know, I often ask that. When I think of the objects of His love, us, I'm often baffled. Why would you do all of that for us? to get us, to buy us, to have us. Why is your love so, well, amazing? There was no other way. I found a little story that dates back to 1937. It was a tragic story that unfolded in that year. A man named John Griffin, whose job it was to control the railroad drawbridge across the Mississippi River. One day he decided to take his eight-year-old son to work. As usual, he opened a massive drawbridge to let the ships pass by. He sat down to eat lunch on the observation deck with his son. They took their lunch out of the bag. Suddenly, John heard the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. It startled him. It was the Memphis Express train a little bit ahead of schedule with over 400 passengers aboard. Quickly, he shot to his feet and he went over to throw the master lever to lower the bridge. He took one quick glance below to make sure that no ships were there. Then a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to leap into his throat. His little boy had slipped from the observation deck and fallen into the massive gears that operate the bridge. His left leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears, Desperately, John's mind whirled to devise a rescue plan. But as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew that there was no time for it, no way it could be done. He could hear the sound of the locomotive wheels coming over the tracks. That was his son down there, yet there were 400 passengers on that train. John knew what he had to do. He buried his head in his left arm, pushed the master switch forward, And the great bridge lowered into place just in time for the Memphis Express to roar across the river. When John lifted his head, his face smeared with tears, he looked into the passing windows of the train. There were businessmen casually reading afternoon papers, finely dressed ladies in dining cars sipping their coffee and tea, and children pushing long spoons into their dishes of ice cream. No one looked at the control house And no one looked at the great gearbox. Then John Griffin cried out, I sacrificed my son for you people. 
Don't you care? But the train rushed by and nobody heard. I don't know the validity of that story. I've read it in a couple different sources. But it illustrates exactly what God did on Calvary. He gave His Son. He sacrificed His Son. He let His Son go through all of the the hellish torture of the cross. Lay upon Him the iniquity of us all. And just as John looked and saw people flying by and eating ice cream and drinking coffee and not caring, God sees so many people around the world, around this city, drive by, and to them, this isn't Good Friday. This is another Friday. It's the last day of the week. Great. They have a weekend ahead of them. They don't care. They don't look to the cross. But we do. And we, with great appreciation, sit at the Lord's table to honor Him with the resolve that we need to tell those people that a sacrifice has been made to save their eternal life. Would the communion board please come? And as they come and we distribute these elements, before we do, we suppose, we don't know for sure, but we suppose that some have come to this service today who don't yet know the Lord personally. Most do, I would imagine. But some have taken time off of work. There's a spiritual hunger in your heart a spiritual longing to know that you can know God, to have your sins forgiven. But you haven't made that commitment to Him yet. You haven't made that belief in Him. You haven't received Him and asked Him to forgive your sins personally. You're not following Jesus Christ. It's really not real to you. The Lord is always willing to forgive. He's always gracious. He always has arms to extend and say, I'll forgive you right now. I'll write, it is finished over your life right now if you will receive me, if you will take the work of my Son and apply it to your life. If you'll do that, if you'll come to Him by faith and receive Jesus Christ, if you will turn from what you know is unrighteous and sinful in God's eyes and you will turn to Him with all of your life, God will forgive your sins and you will be saved. He's given you His written declaration of that. Let's have a word of prayer and then I'll give you an opportunity to make that commitment if you haven't already. What a great battle cry, Father. Cry of victory for your Son. When He said it is finished, He didn't mean I'm going to die now. He meant the picture is completed The debt has been paid. The righteous requirements of the law have been finished as far as mankind is concerned. Redemption is finished. Satan's grip over people's life can be finished. All of those things are true in one person's obedience, one act. It is finished. Lord, you always finish what you begin. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. You made promises for hundreds of years. You fulfilled them in Christ. 
And people still today are enjoying eternal life after 2,000 years. We here today in this city in Albuquerque, New Mexico, far removed from that event in time and in place, are enjoying the benefits of that. And Lord, we pray right now for those who have come, whom you love, whom you have drawn into this place today, who don't yet know Jesus. They haven't yet surrendered their life to Jesus. They don't yet have that peace, that assurance of forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that this would be such a good Friday for those people who will for the first time experience your acceptance, your love, your forgiveness, and our fellowship. If you are sitting among us today and you want to know that your sins are forgiven, you want to know what it's like to be clean, the burden of guilt lifted, to know that if you were to die, you'd be in heaven. If you're ready to turn from sin, turn to Jesus Christ, you're willing to surrender your life. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. Just wherever you're sitting, raise it and I'll acknowledge you and pray for you. God bless you right up front. You too. Anybody else? Raise your hand up high. In the back. One, two, over here. In the middle. I see your hand. Way in the back. Again in the back. I see your hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? Raise it up high. God bless you over here. Father, we pray right now for these who made this acknowledgement and are willing now to surrender. Lord, you know their past. You know it better than even they do. You remember sins they committed that they've forgotten. And you're willing to forgive. You're willing to utterly wipe away. Lord, I pray that you would fill each of these as they receive Jesus Christ. I pray that you would fill them with a peace they've never known before. That they live in the hope and the reality of eternal life. Wherever you are sitting, if you raise your hand up, I want you right where you're sitting to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just say to him right now, Lord, I am a sinner, I admit it. I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I thank you that you sent Jesus on the cross to die for my sins in my place. And I turn my life over to you right now. I turn it all over to you. I receive what your son did for me on the cross personally. Write my name in your book of life. Restore my life. Use me. Make me your disciple. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to pass these elements out, and uh, we're going to ask that you hold on to them until we all have them, and then we can uh, take them together. And now, Lord, 
We think of your precious blood that was spilled. That it wasn't just God coming in human flesh and teaching us and leaving us an example, but that he had to go and pay the ultimate price, death. Our blood doesn't have to be shed. It's not our sacrifice. It's not our works. This cup reminds us that the great word of the gospel is done. It's finished. It's completed. So that our redemption is by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. And we take it honoring you in Jesus' name. Amen.